0: This evening, we turn again to John chapter 20. We'll begin reading with verse 19, which takes up the story of Jesus' resurrection later on during the day. So John talks about the first thing, really, that occurs resurrection Sunday morning, the first appearance of Jesus to Mary, and it seems as if he records also the last on that day. We know there were other appearances of Jesus on that day. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the, midst of, in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you as my father hath sent me even so send I you and when he had said this he breathed on them saith unto them receive ye the Holy Ghost whosoever sins ye remit they are remitted unto them and whosoever sins ye retain they are retained now what follows is our text up to verse 29 but Thomas one of the 12 called didymus was not with them when Jesus came the other disciples therefore said unto him we have seen the Lord but he said unto them except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails And put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other times truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Scriptures and also our text make plain that it is necessary to believe in Jesus Christ to have salvation or to put it in the words of John himself it is necessary to believe to have eternal life as he says these things are written that ye might believe And that believing, ye might have life through his name. And that is a point of emphasis, especially after the resurrection. And it becomes the center and heart even of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is raised from the dead. Search the Scriptures yourself and look at the gospel message that's preached. At the message that will be preached in only a few days when the Spirit is poured out. That message is, you killed him. He suffered and died, but he is alive. Those who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God are dead and there is no life in them and if they are not turned from their unbelief to belief from unbelief or being faithless as jesus puts it to faith they perish in their unbelief because they remain dead and thus will remain dead into even eternity Such is the connection between believing in Jesus Christ and eternal life. But in between that connection is our Lord Jesus himself who is raised from the dead. In other words, what we learn here and elsewhere in Scripture, but especially here what's emphasized is what it means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Those are easy words to say. And perhaps we even think to ourselves, well, that's easy to believe. Sometimes that's even the way it's presented. Jesus is presented in the preaching of the gospel. It's called an offer or an invitation. And the preacher acts as if it's easy to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not so. From a human perspective, viewpoint it's an impossibility and yet the command goes out because without faith one is dead but what now does that mean and here we learn that believing that Jesus is the son of God isn't simply a matter of believing that as to his person he is the son of God It's not even a case that believing that Jesus is the Son of God is to also believe that he is a human being, that he has taken human flesh unto himself, or even that he died. In fact, there were plenty of people who only a few days earlier believed he died. They were absolutely certain there was no doubt in their mind that he had died There were the soldiers that were going to break his legs and didn't because he was dead already, and they marveled at that. There was no doubt, especially after they thrust the sword into his side and water and blood came gushing out. Pilate was certain he was dead. Pilate gave Joseph of Arimathea permission to go bury him The Jewish leaders knew he was dead and had died on the cross. They believed that. They knew that. In fact, they had set their own guard around that tomb to ensure he would not rise from the dead, either in reality or as a story. No, faith includes believing why he died and for whom he died and with what purpose he died as the disciples themselves would believe but there's more than that also perhaps we think to ourselves the most important thing about faith is that we believe jesus died on the cross for our sins and that that's easy to understand it is indeed a very very important essential part Of the Holy Gospel. But if you think it's the only part, or perhaps even the main part, you've missed the Gospel. Now, indeed, the Bible teaches us that we preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and we know no other Christ. But that does not mean the gospel ends with the death of Christ, or even that that's the main thing. The point that's brought out in the resurrection, and a point brought out even by Jesus Christ himself, is that one must believe he was raised from the dead. The reason for that is a multiple of reasons. One is because it's the proof that he died for sins. But there are others also, which is that he must be the Lord from heaven who sanctifies us. In fact, what's often forgotten is that's the main of our salvation. The main, the goal, the end of our salvation is to be delivered from our sins. And his death on the cross is what makes that possible from a legal viewpoint. That's what pays for those sins. That's what ensures that those sins are forgiven, that righteousness is imputed. But that's done with a view to something else, even as is demonstrated by Christ Himself. Don't ever forget that if you want to know the Gospel and understand it, it's embodied in Jesus Himself. It's not simply words we preach. It's not simply doctrine. But the gospel is embodied in Jesus Christ and the gospel is that He who died must be raised so that He can sanctify us, so that He can enliven us, so that He can impart that life now to others. And it's that that in particular Thomas Did not believe. And importantly, Jesus makes a point of it in our text and even calls what Thomas was guilty of unbelief. Be not faithless, Thomas, but believing. Consider with me those words of Jesus be not faithless, but believing. We notice the command, then the expression, and then the blessing. In order to understand what Jesus is getting at, I indicated that partially this morning. That part of the story, part of the things included in the gospel according to John, those things which show that Jesus is the Son of God and that seeing, ye might believe, among those things is the progression of faith. Faith particularly in the resurrection. And what it leads to is faith in the resurrection by not seeing and that's what this is all about the story first of Peter and John who see and believe then Mary Magdalene who sees in a different way and then his appearance to the disciples again by seeing but then there's Thomas who refuses to believe unless he sees In response to that, Jesus issues a severe rebuke and a command. It is in the the main a command. But in that command is a rebuke. What Jesus says to Thomas directly is, Be not faithless, but believing. That is, but be believing. And you must see right at the outset that that is a call, a command to Thomas to repent of his unbelief and turn in belief to stop with his unbelief, repent, and then to instead believe. Now that comes directly to Thomas. And before we proceed, we have to see how serious this is. This is one of those stories that we can easily glaze over or gloss over, perhaps even think that the Lord is picking on Thomas somewhat unfairly, and the man has even gotten a nickname, Doubting Thomas. But the situation is more dire and serious than that. It's not doubting, Thomas. It's unbelieving, Thomas. It's unfaithful, faithless. Notice, faithless. The word that Jesus actually uses is without faith. Thomas, you have no faith. Be not faithless, but be believing. Do you see the seriousness? Now, we're not inclined to recognize the seriousness because of a couple of things. Number one, we can identify with Thomas. There's something about Thomas that makes us look at him and say, that's me. I understand this. I get this. There's times when I'm filled with doubt. There's times that I say foolish things like that. Unless I see this, or unless I see that demonstrated, I'm not going to believe it. And that, even with regard to biblical and religious things. Then there's the thing that Thomas is called to believe, which is the resurrection. That's not believable. From any human viewpoint, the resurrection is unbelievable. It is the end of man. Every human being who has ever died has remained dead. In fact, even those who were raised from the dead, the disciples themselves knew, died again. Lazarus would die again. The widow of Nain's son would die Again, All those people that came out of their graves on Easter morning, they would die again and go back into the grave. Out of the how many billions of human beings that's ever lived since Adam, has anyone escaped death? And the answer is no, not one human being. And not only that, when one goes into the grave and the grave is closed, one does not come out of there. And if one does come out of there, it's in a worse condition than they went in. Death is horrible. There is no evidence that anyone has conquered death, won over death, defeated death, skirted death. It cannot be avoided. And now we're commanded to believe that one man was raised from the dead. A man who had been crucified on a cross, whose hands were wounded, whose side had a mortal wound in it. A man so weak before he went to the cross, he couldn't even carry his cross, and we are called to believe that that particular man was raised from the dead. And Thomas had seen it. Thomas had witnessed it all so you can understand the unbelief you can even understand the unbelief from the perspective of he was told we saw the Lord because they had all seen him they had all run into him they had seen him in the garden they had seen him in the upper room some of them had seen them alone him alone Thomas had not. So, you say, give Thomas a break. He didn't see the Lord. So, what's the big deal that he says I won't believe unless I see him too? Besides that, the Scriptures also indicate that there is going to be a vast difference between the understanding, and therefore the faith, of those who believed prior to the pouring out of the Spirit and those who believed after the pouring out of the Spirit. We see that also in this narrative. We see that in the disciples. How that they have faith. There's no doubt about it. They make confession that Jesus calls faith. They do believe Jesus is the Lord. They believe and confess He is the Christ. But there's something about their faith that is weak. It's very much based on sight. It's very much based on what they can see with their actual eyes and hear with their actual ears. Which is not really what faith is. Faith is to hope and and believe in that which is unseen. And it's easy to compare the disciples prior to Pentecost, and then after. And there's a day and night difference. There's even a day and night difference between the disciples here who believe in the resurrection after this and after Pentecost. And if you doubt me on that, just turn the page and read John 21. How right after this, even though Jesus just told them what they're going to do, told them, you're, you're going to go out and preach this gospel you're going to go out with this very command. Be not faithless, but believing. Here's Jesus Christ. This is who He is. Now believe in Him. And those who reject that Gospel, their sins will be retained. And those who believe that Gospel, you will be given the power to forgive their sins. That's what He tells them. And then the next thing you can see them, they're in a fishing boat in Galilee, going back to fishing. What's the explanation? Well, part of it is the Spirit hasn't been poured out. So it's easy to overlook the seriousness of Thomas's condition. Then there's this too. We know Thomas also has faith. He has some form of faith, and we may even say a saving form of faith. That's evident when you read the Gospels. Even John records how earlier Jesus was in another town and he was going to be required to go to Jerusalem. He was being requested to go to Bethany to heal Lazarus before he died. And everybody knows if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, they're going to capture him and kill him. His life is in jeopardy. The Pharisees had made that very clear. You come near Jerusalem, we're going to kill you. And Thomas was the one disciple who said, let's go. Let's go. I'll go with you. Thomas shows up in Scripture as a man of faith. You remember John 14, again in the book of John. Notice how these things all fit. John is the one who alone tells us about Thomas. Why? Because it all culminates In this story that we're considering tonight when Jesus told the disciples to follow him and then told them that he was going where they couldn't follow him Thomas is the one who said we know not where thou goest and how then can we know the way in other words how can we follow how can we be your disciples how can we do that when we don't even know where you're going very insightful question nevertheless what Jesus is pointing out here and what John is pointing out here what the Holy Spirit is bringing to us is the unbelief of Thomas placed him in severe jeopardy it was a threat to him it was a dangerous condition The Bible never allows us, even though we know we cannot lose faith, even though we know once given it cannot be taken away, we may not also say, well, if there's unbelief in my life or there's things that I doubt, it's not so bad. Jesus corrects that notion by not even recognizing that Thomas has faith that's Jesus own suspect not mine jesus you are faithless thomas you are not believing and you must be believing the evidence of that is even in thomas himself this unbelief this faithlessness of thomas didn't just begin a week after the resurrection but it happened already at the cross Already when Jesus was captured, Thomas had become disillusioned that Jesus was the Christ. He was doubting that He was the Son of God. How could He be? He was just killed. He just died right before our eyes. And that explains why just three days later, on that Easter morning, He's not with the other disciples. He's off by himself. He's not there in the upper room. He's not there to listen. He's withdrawn. He's removed himself from the sphere of the disciples of Jesus Christ. No doubt filled with despair and doubt and despondency about Jesus himself, not simply the resurrection. And so when the disciples finally do catch up with him and tell them, tell him the good news, the gospel, they come to him and say, Thomas, good news, Jesus is alive. That's the gospel. His response is, I will not believe. That's not simply, I don't believe that he's risen from the dead, but that's, I do not believe he is the Son of God. I do not believe he is my Lord and Savior. And I'm not going to believe unless I can actually touch the holes in his hands and put my hand into the side. I'm not going to believe. And Jesus recognizes the seriousness of that condition. That condition is essentially no different than an unbelieving reprobate, you understand. That's their response to the gospel. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach this. And to teach it, not simply for His benefit, but for all the disciples. All of them had a form of this unbelief. All of them, in one way or another, had been filled with doubt, which doubt is unbelief, that Jesus was the Son of God. That explains why they fled. And then after they're gathered... They believe the initial stories that his body has been stolen. Why they have to see with their own eyes before they believe the resurrection. And then, after they believe the resurrection, where do you find them? In an upper room. Doors are all locked. They're terrified. You see? And that's unbelief. And unbelief is serious. Now Jesus teaches this for their benefit. John gets it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit sees it so important he ends his gospel account with this and it's there of course for our benefit why because the command and call that Jesus issued is simply the command and call of the gospel it's the command and call and even promise implied of the gospel, that our own creeds set forth is that which must be published promiscuously to all men. This word of Jesus comes to Thomas. And yes, Thomas was a disciple, but it comes to Thomas as unbelieving. It comes to him even as if he were one who is outside of the kingdom, unbelieving and faithless, Jesus showing there that this gospel, this same gospel, must come to all men. And thus, even our Reformed creeds recognize it. The gospel is Jesus has been crucified for ungodly sinners. And Jesus has been raised from the dead because he has paid for the sins of those ungodly sinners. And the command is, be not faithless, but believing. And that's the answer, then, too, for what sinners Jesus died. It's those who believe on him. Their sins are not forgiven because they believe on him, but those for whom he died will indeed believe on him. And nevertheless even though that's a limited amount of people. It's a limited atonement. And the gospel that goes out as far as its promise is concerned is particular. It's published to everyone. And we have to recognize that here. Be not faithless, repent, but believing. Even though... What the command of the gospel calls us to believe is impossible. The command of God in the call of the gospel is not unreasonable. That's another important point here. When the gospel comes, no man has the right, no man may say, Well, that's impossible. There simply is no evidence here. There simply is no reason to believe. There is, and faith proves it. If one has faith, one sees the evidence, one knows the evidence, one understands, yes, indeed, this is believable, but only believable by faith. Not believable by science. Not believable by the standards of men. Not believable by anything that man has the power to do in and of himself. Only of faith. And that's even true with regard to Thomas. That's what's interesting also. You see, what our creeds also teach about the gospel is, even though it's published promiscuously, those who reject the gospel are responsible for their rejection of it. They may point at God and say, you're at fault. They may point at the gospel and say, that's at fault. They may point at the grace of God and call it weak. They can only point at themselves and say, I'm at fault. It's my fault for rejecting the gospel. That's how reasonable is the command to repent and believe. The fault lies with man. The fault lies with the sinner. The fault lies with him who is blind, who is deaf, who is dumb. And that's true even of Thomas. The narrative shows that. He was an eyewitness to the events. He heard what Jesus said. There was a time that he believed what Jesus said. And yet there he is, unbelieving. So Jesus comes to him. Now, the other thing we learn here is that when Jesus brings that command, there is a response, a response of faith, and that faith comes to expression in his confession, my Lord and my God. That's how repentance and faith always expresses itself. Prior to that, there's doubt, there's unbelief concerning the fact that Jesus is my Lord and my God. And when one believes, he confesses, my Lord and my God. That's how it expresses itself. Let's break that down. It's a confession, first of all, that Jesus is Lord and God. That he is Lord and God in our flesh. That this one standing before me with holes in his hands and a hole in his side is Lord and God. That's amazing. Because what stands before him is a man. But that is what the resurrection teaches. The resurrection is proof of a lot of things. And one of the things it's proof of is that Jesus was not only a man. He must be a man. You can't crucify God. You can't nail God to a cross. God doesn't have blood that can pour out. God cannot die. And yet God was on that cross. God was on the cross. And God went into the grave. And God came out of the grave. And God now, God, is standing before Thomas. And Thomas recognizes it and says, My Lord and my God. And this is something we often can forget, but it is the teaching of our catechism. For example, in the opening Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism, we only connect this often to the death of Christ. We forget about it with regard to the resurrection. And the question is asked... Can there be found anyone who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? No, none. For God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature, that includes no mere human being, can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. God must be on the cross. Otherwise, there's no resurrection. That's what the Catechism says. And in case we miss it, it repeats it. Question answer 17. Why must he be in one person, in one person also very God? And it gives basically the same answer. That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. You see, the burden of God's wrath is so great against sin, against our sin, against the sins that Jesus was paying for, that even if He was there as a perfect human being, a superhuman being, He could not sustain the wrath of God such that He obtains for and restores us to righteousness and life. Oh, it's conceivable perhaps that if He wasn't God, He could sustain the wrath of God in some way, but not in the way that it must be done, which is that this one who dies must restore others to life. He must restore them to righteousness and life. And the only way to do that is if he is alive. So he must die, but come to life. And our confessions say the only way he could do that is if he's God. And Thomas recognizes it. Mary sees a gardener. Mary sees Jesus in his human age. Thomas looks through it and he says, My Lord and my God. My Lord. Lord. That is, one who holds absolute authority over all other lords. When Thomas says Lord, he means the Lord. The Lord of lords. The King of kings. The one whom God has given authority and power over all things. That too he recognizes. How else can you explain that he is no longer dead? The most powerful thing, the most powerful thing, beloved, in all the world is sin and death. They work together. Sin and the corrosive nature of sin and its development cannot be stopped. And then, of course, the wages of sin, death. But now it's done. Someone has defeated death. That means he's Lord. Now there's something there that again belongs to faith. There is no faith simply in the resurrection. There is no faith that's simply in the crucifixion either. In other words, if one believes that Jesus is the Son of God, one believes that He was crucified and He was raised. And if one believes He was raised, one also believes He is Lord and God. I mention that because there's many who don't view it that way. They like the idea that their sins are forgiven. They like the idea of Jesus crucified on the cross for their sins so that all their sins are washed away but not the idea that Jesus is their Lord. That Jesus is the one who has the right and authority to tell them what to do. They treat that as if something was taken away. That's done with Jesus' is Lord, perhaps, with regard to forgiving my sins, but not Lord of my life. He doesn't own me. Notice also, my Lord. And my God. You see, there is a kind of faith that recognizes Jesus is Lord. Even as there's a kind of faith that believes in the events of the resurrection, it's called historical faith. There's many examples of it. And it's even called faith. Historical faith is that which believes in certain facts, certain facts even revealed in the Bible, believes they are true, but is not real faith because it doesn't believe Jesus is the Son of God. And there's another example here. There's many who will confess Jesus is Lord and God, even the Lord and God. You even have some examples of that. Pilate believed he was a Lord of some kind, even put it on his superscription, even considered him some sort of threat in the end. He even worried about the fact that he might even be God because of the dream that his wife had and the warning she gave the devils, Satan knows he's Lord and God. There's no doubt about that. But that's not faith. There may be many Christians in a pew somewhere who will confess that Jesus is the Lord and the God, may believe the fact, but they don't have faith because they don't believe he's my Lord and my God. That's faith. Faith is always personal. Thomas is confessing that Jesus is Lord over his own life, his personally, that he owns him, he's bought him, he has the right to tell him how to live and what to do. He's also the one who's responsible for him, that he is the Lord and the Lord who will and does save him, the Lord who takes care of him, the Lord who does everything for him. And notice too, my God, That is, I believe this one in front of me is the God who loves me and cares for me. That's what it means to be my God. The God who has set His affection upon me. The God who loves me. The God who cares for me. The God who just gave His life in human nature for me. That's faith. And what a difference it is from being faithless in unbelieving now that confession of faith is proof itself that Jesus is risen from the dead and he is what Thomas says that he is you see what we often forget and perhaps what we even worry about doubt maybe we think it's not reformed is when The confessions come to us and they tell us about the command of the gospel, the call of the gospel, repent and believe. And then even goes on and says this, that those who refuse, who obstinately refuse to believe, who reject that gospel, canons don't go on and say, well, that's because they were reprobate. It's true. doesn't say it's because God didn't give them the gift of faith. That's true. But it says they're wholly, entirely responsible for that unbelief. And we may say, oh, well, that means when I believe, then I must take credit for that. That must be because of what I am and what I do. And that's why some even fear talking about the command of the gospel. They fear the issuing the call of the gospel. They fear that language because they think that's what it implies, but not so. Our canons make clear. That when one does receive the gospel, when one does believe, when one does confess, Jesus is my Lord and my God, that is entirely due to God. And you see it here. Why is it that Thomas goes from unbelieving to believing, from faithless to having faith? It's Christ. And it's demonstrated right in the passage. Did you notice how it goes? Thomas's unbelief is I'm not going to believe unless I actually poke my fingers in those holes and I put my hand in that side. But does he do that? He does not. Jesus tells him to. Just before Jesus says, Be not faithless, but believing, Jesus says, Here, here's my hands, put them in there, put, put it in the side. And Thomas believes! But is it exactly because of what he sees? Jesus says, you've believed because you see, but what really is going on? And the answer is, Christ worked faith by the very words that He spoke. What is it that works that faith? What is it that brings that faith out? What is it that changes Him from unbelieving to believing? And it's Jesus. It's the risen Lord who notices He's not there, who knows He's not there because He's planned it all. He's planned this whole thing. Who has given Himself on the cross, who is coming out of the cross, who chases Him down the week later, who finds Him, who isolates Him and gets right to the point. Thomas, be not faithless but believing. And it's in those words Thomas recognizes, that's my Lord, and that's my God, and that's always how it works. It doesn't matter where the sheep of Jesus are. It doesn't matter if they're found among the goats or they're found among the other sheep. When there's unbelief, so serious is that condition, so serious is that a situation that Jesus must come and rebuke us for that. And in that rebuke and that call to repentance, the sheep hear his voice, and they know him. That's what Jesus is demonstrating here. He's demonstrating how it is that he who was dead and is now alive is going to impart life to others. And it's by what the gospel apostles preach. Remember what they're going to preach? Faith comes by what? Hearing. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the Word of God. That's what Jesus just demonstrated. That's what Jesus just showed. Now Jesus is going to add something. He's going to advance this. He moves on and says, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, because you've heard me, because I'm here in the flesh before you, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. There's blessing here. And blessing for those who believe but do not see. Oh yes, there's blessing for those who saw. There's blessing for Peter and for John, for Mary Magdalene. There's blessing for Thomas. That blessing is that they will be called to their duties and for the apostles it will be special duty that as eyewitnesses of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, they now will be sent forth with the good news He's risen and He's Lord and He's God and He's in heaven. Repent and believe in Him. And the blessedness is that you see them happy and joyful. That's what that word means happy. Peter's going to be crucified on a cross. We don't know what happens to Thomas. Many of them are martyred, but they're happy because they're blessed with the life of Christ himself. But Jesus focuses on us. We especially are blessed and especially because we believe without seeing it's real true faith faith as it really is defined evidence and belief in those things that are not seen so we see him and we hear him but by faith and that blessedness is found even in our creeds I'm just going to read that to you if you go to Lord's Day 17 want to know the blessedness of the resurrection what doth the resurrection of Christ profit you what's the advantage what's the blessing this first by his resurrection he has overcome death why that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he purchased by his death so the resurrection Shows he's overcome death so that he might make us partakers of the righteousness purchased by his death. You see, the death serves the resurrection. The resurrection is the end, it's the goal, it's how everything's going to come to us. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. You see, there's a connection between the resurrection and the cross that's inseparable at the cross you see the forgiveness of sins in the resurrection you see the power of a new life deny that new life say we don't have that new life there's not much to be said about that new life the main thing is our sins are forgiven then you've left behind the gospel the resurrection is about the power that we are by his power notice his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the blessedness is this. The resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge, a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Why? Because it's faith that unites us to Christ. And unites us so much so that He, our head, is out of the grave The body must follow he our head is in heaven and the body must follow so be not faithless but believing amen let us pray our father which art in heaven o lord we thank thee for thy word the great call of the gospel to repent and believe in our lord jesus christ crucified and raised again the third day. Fill us with His life. Cause us by the power of that life to live unto Thee, our God, confessing that Thou art our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.